There's a scene in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings where a band of orcs turns on one another. For those of you who never did the Lord of the Rings thing, orcs are some non-human baddies that are particularly vicious and violent. In this scene, the orcs are hungry and fractious, and they're on the brink of mutiny. In order to reassert his authority and defeat his hungry cohort, the leader of the orcs kills the lead agitator and yells, Looks like meat's back on the menu, boys! And while Tolkien never really wrote much about the cultural life of the orc, a land like that does make you ask, did orcs have restaurants? Like the kind where you sit down and a waiter comes over and you order from the menu? I mean, maybe they did. Seems a little improbable, that's all. But then, so does Nouvelle Cuisine. I'm Tamara McNeil, and welcome to She Eats Rations. Well, 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 look who's here! I haven't seen you in many a year! If I knew you were coming, I'd have baked a cake, baked a cake, baked a cake. If I knew you were coming, I'd have baked a cake. Hot you do, hot you do, hot you do. Had you dropped me a letter, I'd have hired a band. The thing that's actually kind of striking about that throwaway line in Lord of the Rings is that there's genuinely no reason Middle-earth wouldn't have a restaurant. Humans have probably been dining out for as long as there's been a difference between outside and inside. That said, the word restaurant is actually pretty new. It hits the English lexicon around 1820. And what we think of a restaurant is a pretty new thing, too. But people have been eating out. Well, they've been eating out forever. Let's talk for a second about Pompeii. Back in 78 AD, Pompeii was a thriving little community. It had great views of the Bay of Naples, it boasted a brand new sports arena, had a nice port, and the next year it was entirely entombed in ash. It turned out that 79 AD was the big Rome versus Vesuvius fight, and Vesuvius won. Thanks to Vesuvius and the meters and meters of ash that it deposited on the town, we know Romans ate it a lot. And they tended to do their eating in wine bars. See, Romans drank a lot of wine. We're going to talk about this a bit more in the alcohol episode, but for right now, suffice to say that Roman wine is not like our wine. It's thought that it was more gelatinous, and it needed to be watered down in order to be drinkable. It also needed to be spiced and sweetened and sometimes heated. Wine was the primary beverage, but with water being plentiful thanks to the aqueducts, but not necessarily potable. A mix of water and wine dilutes wine's soporific effects, and depending on the amount of alcohol you put in it, it can also uh, take care of some of the bacteria in there, which makes it more potable. Anyway, if you happen to walk along a street in Pompeii, you will probably encounter one of Pompeii's well-known wine bars where hot spiced wine was served to thirsty locals and travelers. Uh, if you happened to be there when the town was up and running, you would also have been able to order nibbles, should you feel so inclined. These days, if you walk down the right street, you'll probably see a, a number of empty what, what are called palpina, these are the lower-class wine shops that mostly serve the working class. Next to one of these particular palpinas, there's a wood shop. And on that wood shop, there's a rather famous piece of graffiti that says something to the effect of, may you get yours, landlord. You charge for water and hoard all the wine. There's something lovely about that symmetry. Where there are restaurants, so too there are restaurant critics. Uh, just for the record, there might be something like 120 wine bars in Pompeii alone. Let's put that into context. Pompeii was something of a resort town, but the static population was probably around 11,000 people. That's almost one papina for every 10 people. Put that into context, and assuming Wikipedia hasn't lied to me and my math is right, in modern Canada, there's one restaurant for every 379 Canadians. And in the U.S. in 2006, it's something like one for every 1,300. The Romans ate out a lot. There's a reason for that. 
the reason people in the pre-modern era eat out so much is really simple. Up to the modern era, cooking is difficult, dangerous, and dirty work. First, there's the problem of getting and keeping food in an era before food preservation. I mean, unless you're talking about salt. Then there's the problem of getting fuel. Ever scavenged for campfire fuel? The first day, it's easy. Second day, it's tough. And the third or fourth day, you really have to look. If you've ever tried scavenging for wood at a campsite at the end of the camping season, now that's really hard. It's much better to just bring your own or maybe buy some. Now multiply that by the number of people in a town, the years they've been living there, and every single meal they've cooked, and you get the idea of how tough it can be to just obtain the cooking fuel. Then there's the problem of smoke. Chimneys didn't hit the aisles until the reign of Henry VIII, which meant that everyone, from serf to lord, had their food cooked over an open flame indoors. Danger to life and limb, not only from the smoke, but also from sparks and coals, is not inconsiderable. Chimneys were a big deal when they came in. Take a look at Hampton Court Palace. The chimneys there are decorative. They're prominently displayed. The architect wanted to show this technological advancement. It indicated the might of the king, and they wanted to tell everyone who looked up about the grandeur of the kitchens. The chimney made it into the average person's dwelling quite a while later. But when they did arrive, they brought with it safer and more salubrious cooking environments, though the problem of food preservation and fuel acquisition still stayed pretty serious. So here we are at the start of the Renaissance, and we're starting to see the first stirrings of what's going to become a massive shift from agriculturally focused communities into urban communities of the sort we have these days. These days, more than half the world's population lives in cities, and thanks to modern technologies, those cities are increasingly livable. But back in the day, if you lived in a lodging house or an apartment in the city, you wouldn't expect to cook at all. Ever. No, instead you'd go out. Uh, you might get a meal of oysters or buns or hot peas cods. That's peas in a pod for the rest of us. Uh, meat pie, allegedly meat. Fish or maybe eels. Incidentally, this is an era before government regulation of cooking temperatures or storage or handling and freshness. So you paid your money and you took your chances. If you found a place that didn't send you running for the privy that night, you would probably stick to it. More than likely, you'd spend a fair bit of time stuck to your chamber pot, regretting your eel in its own sauce that you bought the night before. Dodgy food wasn't just a feature of your urban Europe. Jerusalem famously had a street of cookshops that was so bad, the locals gave it a special name. Malcuisinat, the street of bad cooking. Just like today, if you're traveling, it's always better to know where the locals eat. For a long time, eating out was just how you did it. There wasn't another option, unless you were a lord or a king, or unless you lived in the middle of nowhere and you lived off the land. And don't get me wrong, a lot of people did at this time. But urban dwellers? We've always eaten out. So what changed? How did we get from statement chimneys on palace roofs to fine dining? That's coming up after the break. Hey friends, just a quick interruption here to send a shout out to sponsors Colleen, Teresa, and David, who back the show on Patreon and who've been super enthusiastic about it. Thanks, guys. I also want to say thanks to Jason Dethridge, who's doing the sound editing and mixing for all of this, and it makes me sound like I'm recording in a studio instead of from my bedroom. He's doing it for free. It's amazing. So thanks again to Colleen, Teresa, David, and Jason, friends of the podcast. And if you want to be a friend of the podcast too, you can sponsor She Eats Rations by checking us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash tammcneil. That's T-A-M-M-A-C-N-E-I-L. Welcome back. As the feudal era closed and cities grew, so grew the middle class, and with the middle class came restaurant culture. See, the middle classes were non-laboring classes. They didn't work on farms, and they didn't haul cargo off ships. Instead, they filled law offices and doctor's surgeries. 
They ran shops and import businesses. And unlike the landed gentry, who were always within distance of a servant to bring them their victuals, these people were often on their own and away from home at mealtimes. They wanted something free of their lower-class neighbors. They didn't want to eat in the street, sitting on stoops or doorsteps. So pubs stepped up to the challenge. Pubs? Yeah, pubs. From the Renaissance to the Georgian period, restaurants as we imagine them were largely non-existent, though there were a few, like Simpsons. What there were far more of were coffee houses and pubs. Pubs catered to all classes and were generally for people traveling rather than the locals, although locals for- certainly formed the backbone of their clientele. By the 17th century, the coffee house, with its entrance fee of a penny per person, did its part to provide an out-of-office gathering place for men and keep the classes separated. Men of the middling sort and higher would convene at a coffee shop to talk about the day's news, do business deals, maybe get a bite to eat. Women were barred and also unimpressed. Incidentally, also unimpressed was the king. There was some talk of shuttering the coffee houses for a while. But the king back then was Charles II, who not only enjoyed a good time himself, he was also the son of a king who'd been executed after ticking off the people one too many times. Charles knew what side his bread was buttered on. Coffee shops stayed open. To compete with the coffee houses, pubs had to step up their food service game and their class segregation game, too. By the time the 18th century rolled around, the saloon had been born. The saloon was a special room with a cover charge, where beer and food might be better, the seating would probably be padded, and games like cards or pool were available. This neatly separated the classes, with laborers eating and drinking in the front and the middle class playing and doing business in the back. And those pubs that were located in areas where the new middle and professional classes worked, well, they did best of all. By providing high-back booths, good food, good drinks, discreet servers, they encouraged the middle classes to take their work out of the office and into the pub. So the business lounge was born. One of that new breed of eating establishments was Simpson's. Back in 1723, Thomas Simpson opened an eatery. His shop was, well, not exactly like a modern restaurant. See, Simpson had a business model that looked a lot like the traditional bakery model, where people would make bread at home and then take it to the bakers to be thrown it in the oven and pay for the privilege thereof. So Simpson adopted this model for his first eatery, taking a cue from the Huguenots who'd come over to England not so long before and brought with them their so-called ordinaries, basically dining houses. Simpson created what might be thought of as England's first restaurant. You brought him fish, he cooked it for you, and you could stay on the premises to eat it. The endeavor didn't last. I'm not clear why. He tried something similar later on in life at a place called the Queen's Arms, which was probably a tavern, and then again in 1757. Maybe by now he'd finally nailed his business plan, or maybe finally London was ready for him. Whatever the case, Simpson's Chop House in London is actually still a going concern. Back then, if you wanted to get lunch was served at one sharp, and, as if the occasion was a dinner party and not a meal at a restaurant, diners would be introduced to one another by someone called the chairman. Incidentally, if you've ever heard the expression, the meat is on the board, you probably know that in the medieval era, chairs and tables were basically a board on sawhorses with some benches. Furniture was scarce and, consequently, pretty highly valued. So it made sense that the guy who got the chair at the end of the table was the most important person around. He's literally the chairman of the board. So, presumably the chairman at Simpsons was Simpson himself, who, if that was the case, must have considered himself a person of note. By the 1800s, more and more restaurants started popping up to serve the growing middle class. Simpsons on the Strand opened in 1828 as a smoking room and quickly transformed into a restaurant that's also still up and running. Other places opened too, many still wedded to the tradition of serving travelers rather than the locals. 
you will probably know some of the famous names. Claridge's, for example, or the Savoy, which opened in 1890 with celebrity chef Auguste Escoffier at the helm, or the Ritz, which opened in 1905 and also hired Escoffier, but that was later. As the grand hotels opened what were essentially temples of food, complete with 17th century furnishings and slipper-shod waiters who ghosted in and out of private dining rooms, it became easier for the higher echelons of society to also participate in this phenomenon of dining out. The term restaurant was coined around the 1820s, and a century later, they suddenly came into vogue. This was partly because King Edward, known then as King Tum-Tum among his circle but never to his face, fell in love with dining at the Ritz. Once the king was keen on it, it became the fashionable thing. So now we have three streams of dining. Four, if you like. There's food, which is very low-cost sit-down or take-out meals. Kind of like street food from mobile vendors. That falls into that category. Although, with the new foodie revolution and the food truck scene, this is gentrifying and dividing, too. There's something that might be roughly analogous to family dining or modern pub dining. And then there's the very high-end fine dining scene. It looked kind of like restaurants were just going to settle into an analogy of the British class system, with each tier serving an adjacent clientele. But then along came the war. We're going to talk about that on the next episode of She Eats Rations. If I Before I wrap it up, one more shout-out to sponsors for this episode, Colleen, Teresa, and David. Thanks so much for supporting me on Patreon and slinging ideas for episodes on Twitter. That's it for me. I'm Tamara McNeil, and if you want to, you can find me on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can reach me at tamthewriter at gmail.com if you want, which would be great. The theme music is If I Knew You Were Coming Out of Baked Cake, sung by Aileen Barton. Technical production by Jason Dethridge, who's once well done. But it really doesn't matter. Grab a chair and fill your platter and dig, dig, dig right in. If I knew you were coming, I'd have baked a cake. Hired a band. Goodness sake, if I knew you were coming, I'd have baked a cake. How'd you do? How'd you do? How'd you do?